Well, not to uh, shift gears too abruptly, but to go from the songs that were just sung, which were awesome, by the way, to now uh, directing your uh, attention to a different song, a song written not by uh, anyone who ever professed, I don't believe, to be a follower of Jesus, and uh, yet it, this was a, a song that came out in the late 80s when most of you weren't around or alive, um, or even a thought in your parents' uh, minds at the time. Uh, there was a song by an artist named George Michael called Faith, and this is not a song about faith in Jesus, like we just sang about. This is not a song about faith in God. This is a song where this artist is writing about how he has to have enough faith to break up with a girl who's just not good for him. So he's talking about how hard that is, but every time he's tempted to go back with her, he's got to have faith that there's something better out there. Well, in a moment of lyrical inspiration, that, and it's nothing short of that, he penned a chorus that is just as profound as it possibly can be. And the chorus says this. I'm not going to sing it for you. I'll uh, leave you to uh, look up the song later. But the chorus says, I got to have faith, I got to have faith, because I got to have faith, 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 I got to have faith, faith, faith. And profound, I know, deep, and you're thinking, how in the world have I never heard of this song? Uh, even though it was written in 1987 by this guy named George Michael, it doesn't have anything to do with Christianity. Why begin there? Well, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11 tonight. If, if you've been around the church, if you spend any time in the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 11 is often referred to as the chapter of faith. It's the, the hall of faith, if you will. If you've ever been to a hall of fame and you've walked through and you've seen the plaques up on the wall and you've seen this person and that person and this person and all their great accomplishments in their sport or in their career, Hebrews chapter 11 is the hall of faith, not the hall of fame, because it walks through example after example after example of men and women of great faith from the Old Testament. And the call is, and the, the, the charge to us is, we need to have, we've got to have that same faith if we hope to endure, because that's what the author's been addressing. Chapter 9, chapter 10, he's been encouraging us to endure, to hold fast, to remain steadfast. We talked about that a little bit last time we were together. We talked about that endurance, that perseverance, and how that's a hallmark of genuine faith, of genuine Christianity. Well, if we're going to, going to endure in the world in which we find ourselves, we got to have faith. It's one thing, though, to agree with that. It's another thing to understand what that means. And so Hebrews chapter 11, as we're going to tackle the entire chapter, 23 points for you tonight. There you go, 23 points. It's the most points I think I've ever done in a sermon ever. Uh, we're going to walk through this whole chapter, and we're going to answer the question, what is faith? Because it's one thing to be told, you have to have faith. It's one thing to be told, have faith in in Jesus as your Savior. Have faith in God. Have faith in the promises of the Bible. Have faith in Christianity. It's one thing to talk about faith and to say, I have faith, but what does faith actually mean? What does it look like? How should it look in our lives? Hebrews chapter 11 is going to answer that for us tonight. Let's start in verses 1 through 2. I'm not going to go through verse by verse the entirety of the chapter, so don't worry if you're sitting there going, man, I've got to be at work tomorrow morning. Um, I'm not going to be able to hang just chill. We'll, we'll be okay. I promise you are not going to be here for the next four hours. Well, maybe you will, but not just listening to this sermon for the next four hours. Hebrews chapter 11, verses one and two. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. So he's setting up the chapter by defining faith. And so often this is the definition that's quoted. You ask a Christian, what is faith? And they're going to go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is, point number one tonight, the assurance of things hoped for. You say, well, Pastor G, are you just going to write down everything that the Bible says here? Is that just going to be your entire sermon? Like, here's what it says word for word, because I could have stayed home and read that. No, just the first two are that way. But it's the assurance of things hoped for. So if you think about assurance, right, the, the author was writing to a group of, of people, remember, tempted to drift, tempted to walk away from Christianity. They were facing opposition, facing hostility, needing to endure, and they were tempted to, to let go. They were tempted to not hold fast, as he's been encouraging them to. And so he wants to remind them, hey, you've got to have faith, and faith is, number one, the assurance of things hoped for, this confidence if we go back to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14, the writer says there, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That original assurance of things hoped for. Well, what are we hoping for as believers? Ultimately, we're, we are hoping to be with the Lord. We are hoping to be with Jesus. We are hoping to see our Savior face to face. We are hoping that 
we will transcend this broken, fallen world and go to live with him forever on the new earth when that is inaugurated. That is what we hope for. And so it's the assurance of that hope. It's a, a certainty, a certainty that, that, that what we're about and what we're doing is going to be realized. It's the assurance of things hoped for. But point number two, it's also the conviction of things not seen. The conviction of things not seen. Conviction is certainty that's based upon evidence. So when you have conviction about something, it's because you've seen enough evidence to conclude that this is something that is actually true, right? You all have a conviction that gravity works. Otherwise, we'd have far more people jumping off buildings thinking, I'm just going to fly. But you don't do that. Why don't you do that? Because you've dropped enough things and you yourself have tripped and fallen enough times to go, that hurts when I'm only about three feet off the ground. I don't want to do that from the 30 feet off the ground or 300 feet off the ground. I know that gravity works because I have a conviction that it works because I've seen the evidence and I'm convicted that, yes, this is true. Well, with Christianity, though we cannot see God, right? God is spirit. We have enough evidence as we look at the creation, Romans chapter 1, Psalm chapter 19, that God exists. And then beyond that, we go to the scriptures and we study the reliability and the historicity of the Bible and that we can trust this book as it's been handed down to us. And we look at the evidence, we weigh the evidence, and then faith is a, a conviction that comes out of that of, notice, the things not yet seen. And so we look about the evidence that testifies to the, 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 the reality, the truth of that future that we have with Christ. And so that's faith in a, a 30,000-foot view nutshell right there for you. It is the assurance of what we hope for. It's a certainty that, yes, this is going to happen. And it's a conviction. It's a, a, a die in the wool. Yes, I've, I've weighed the evidence here, and I have a conviction that this is true, that the thing's not yet seen, that, that the heavenly realities and being with Jesus, that all of that is true. That's faith. But so often we stop there. We want to say, okay, but, but what does that actually look like? Because that, that's all fine and good, but, but what should that look like in our lives? By the way, look where he goes in verse 3 really quick. He says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. What he's just done is he's taken theistic evolution, wadded it up in a giant wad and thrown it in the divine dumpster. It is, this is why I will tell you all day long that it is not possible to be a theistic evolutionist and a Christian. Those two things are at odds with each other. The biblical account of creation is the true factual account of creation. And it's not just because Genesis 1 and 2 records it that way. It's because here in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3, what does our author say? We have faith that God created by his word, God said and it was, out of what? Out of things that were visible? No, out of what? Out of nothing. And so I, I just want to challenge you, if you're out there holding on to, harboring, man, I, I want theistic evolution to be true because I, I don't want to believe that my biology teachers were wrong. I, I hate to break it to you, your biology teachers are wrong and you're on dangerous territory to believe that theistic evolution is, is, a, is a thing. But we're not here to talk about that. That's a different sermon. That's just an example of faith that our author gives. He says, we need to have faith, which is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. You want an example? He says right off the bat, how about the creation of the universe? You think this is a modern day problem? It's not a modern day problem. People were wondering about the creation of the universe back here. And he says, look, we need to believe what the scripture says. We need to have faith that what the scripture says is actually the way it happened. I mean, Pastor PJ, you believe that God created the world in six literal days? Really? Seriously? 24 hours? Yes, I do. Why? How can you believe that? Because he's God. Like once we admit that he's God and he exists and he's bigger and more powerful than any other being imaginable and conceivable, why do we have to limit him? Well, it's impossible for the universe to be created in six literal days. Yes, by a human being, I agree with you, but by God, it's not. And the Bible tells us we need to have that faith. But what else is faith? What should it look like? How should it be? Pick up in, in verse four. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. So now we're going back to Cain and Abel, right after Adam and Eve and after creation, right? We started with creation, now we're moving to Adam and Eve. And Abel offers this more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, he says, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. 
Verse 6, here it is. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Third point, what is faith? Well, faith is, as we just read, necessary to please God. If you're saying, I want to make God happy, I want to please God, okay, you need to have faith. And the example that he gives there is is twofold. One is Abel. Abel, by faith, brought God the, the best of his of his produce, the best of, of his, his offerings, right? It, it wasn't that it, it was in, in necessarily the offering itself that was better. It was just that Abel, or Cain rather, gave what was left over. He didn't give the first fruits. He didn't give the, the choice offering to the Lord. Abel did as an expression of faith in God saying, God, you've given me this. I trust that you will continue to provide for me. It was an offering of faith that then pleased the Lord. You go to Enoch. Enoch was a man of faithfulness to the Lord, obedient to the Lord. As we'll see, that's another attribute of faith later on. But he pleased God so much so that God didn't bring him through the gate of physical death, but took him to be with him where he is. Enoch was caught up to be with the Lord. And so we see that that faith is necessary to please God. You can't please God if you don't have faith. Again, you've got to have faith. But not only that, verse 4 through 6 also says it's necessary to draw near to God. If you want a relationship with God, if you want proximity to God, if you want intimacy with the Lord, you've got to have faith. You can't get there through the intellect. You can't get there through experiential emotions. No, you've got to have faith, and that is what opens the door for us to draw near to God. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's an expression of faith that God can provide those things for us. And so the way that we draw near to the throne of grace to find those things is an expression of our faith. How about Hebrews 7.25? It says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Well, how do I draw near to God through Christ? It's an act of faith in what Jesus has done for us. And what he's still doing for us. That he's interceding for us. So that we are saved to the uttermost. Hebrews 10.22. Let us then draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. There it is right there for you. How do I draw near to the Lord? Well, it's an expression of your faith in God. Your faith in Christ. James 4.8 says, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. How do I do that? Well, it's about your faith. That's why you can't come here tonight and go through the motions and expect God to be happy with you. You can't come here tonight and, and, and just kind of check a box and expect, okay, I've done my part. I went to the bridge. I sang the songs, and I listened to the sermon, and I even talked in small group, so I'm going to pat myself on the back, and I'm, I'm now nearer to God than I was. No, not if those are not buoyed by faith. Not if those actions are not carried along by a, a trust and a confidence in the Lord. And an offering that's offered to the Lord through your, your worship of him, like Abel's offering, that was pleasing and acceptable to God. Why? Because it was accompanied by, by faith. So faith is necessary to please God. It's also necessary to draw near to God. But let's keep going. Verse 7. <clears throat> says this. It says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness, the righteousness that comes by faith. So faith is also coupled with the fear of God. Noah was told, hey Noah, go and build an arky out of gopher barky, right? You guys never sang that song growing up. Okay, never mind. God told Noah to build him an arky arky, build it out of gopher barky. Stop it, whatever. Just <laughs> Google it on YouTube. Um, no, it's fear, right? Because God told Noah, you need to build, build an ark because uh, things are not going well and uh, I'm going to wreck everything and everybody's going to get wiped out. So Noah, build an ark for you and your family and anyone else that will come with you. And so Noah becomes a herald of righteousness, he called. He's uh, the, the preacher of the gospel during this stage, calling on people to repent from their sins because God's judgment is coming. He's obeying God, taking years and years to build this ark in the middle of a land where there's no ocean, and people are coming by going, Noah, what are you doing? But it was his faith that is fueled by a fear of God that caused him to continue to be obedient to the Lord. 
See, our faith is often coupled with a fear of God. In fact, in Luke chapter 8, verse 25, Jesus has just calmed the, the storm on the sea. And he says this to his disciples. He says to them, where is your faith? The disciples had fear, but it wasn't fear coupled with faith. See, a fear coupled with faith is a trust in God, and it's, it's fearing a, 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 an ignoring or a, a disobeying of God more than it is the circumstances that you find yourself in. It's fearing disappointing God or, or transgressing God's commandments more than it is the mockery and persecution of the world around you. So he says to them, where are, is your faith? And it says, they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? See, in, in verse 25, their fear becomes the, the appropriate fear. Notice they were afraid in the midst of the storm and they're still afraid after he's calmed the storm. But it's a different kind of fear. It's the right fear that's fueled by a faith that this guy is somebody different. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Faith is often coupled with a fear of God that dictates, man, how do I conduct myself? How do I live my life? I don't want to make this God angry with me in the way that I live my life. I want to have a reverential fear of him that impacts the way that I operate. It's coupled with a fear of God. But look at verse 8. By faith, now we're to Abraham. Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. He went out, not knowing where he was going. Next point. Faith is what? It's, it's coupled with an unquestioning obedience. And look, God is the, perhaps the only one worthy of that. Every time Abraham encounters God, God says, Abraham, I want you to go. Go from everything you've ever known to a land that I will show you. He didn't have Google Maps coordinates that he could drop a pin in Apple Maps and send it to Abram and go, here you go, I'm sharing my location with you. This is the land that's flowing with milk and honey. This is where you're going. Step-by-step -step navigation, this will take you there. Abraham didn't know that. Abraham didn't know about the rest of the story, right? He didn't know at this point about Isaac. He didn't know about the, the, the promises. He didn't know about King David down the road. He didn't know about Solomon. He didn't know about the, the prophets. He didn't know about Isaiah 53, he didn't know about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He didn't know about John the Baptist. He didn't know about Jesus. He didn't know about Paul or any of his writings. He didn't know that he would find himself in Hebrews chapter 11 at this point. All he knew was he had a command from God that said, Abraham, go. It says not knowing where he was going because little Dr. Seuss action in here in chapter 11. Abraham went. He didn't challenge God. He didn't question God. He didn't say, God, where am I going? Hold on first a sec. Oh, wait a minute. Are there going to be tolls on this drive? Am I going to get reimbursed for mileage on this thing? Because my camel is wearing out. Uh, is there going to be kids' sports leagues there? Because eventually I want to settle down and have a family, and I need to know, like, what are, the, what are the sports leagues like? What are the taxes like in this new land? God, I don't know if I really want to go. Who's the governor over there? I, I'm trying to find a, a place with better politics, and I don't want to go from one bad place to another bad place. He doesn't ask any of that. God says, go, Abram goes. Faith is coupled with unquestioning obedience. Some of you, God's will is very clear in your life right now is what he's calling you to do. He's speaking to you loud and clear through the pages of scripture that there is something in your life that you need to do. Either an active measure of your obedience that you've been neglecting, you've been slothful or passive, or there's something in your life that you are harboring disobedience that you know God is calling you on right now and saying you need to leave off this sin. Faith here is calling on you to say, okay, I'm gonna do it. Unquestioning obedience. Unquestioning obedience. But it's also, notice, fueled by a future hope. Look at back at verse 1 again. It's the assurance of things hoped for. But now, with that in mind, jump down to verse 9 and, and 10. By faith, he went to live in the land of the promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. What is faith? Faith is also, next, fueled by a future hope. See, this is part of what led Abraham to, to go without questioning God. He knew that God was going to do something great, and he wanted to be a part of that. And so his faith was not just a blind faith that said, well, come what may, I guess we'll just give this thing a shot. Let's load up and go and see what happens. 
No, it was, okay, we're going to go not knowing what's going to happen, except that I know that God is doing something great. He was looking forward to a city whose foundations have a builder that is God, right? Well, that's that eternal dwelling place that we will all be in one day if we are in Christ. And so it's fueled by a future hope. We find this in 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, where it says this. It says, for I am, this is Paul writing to Timothy. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, and I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Now, henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but all who have loved his appearing. So Paul is at the end of himself, at the end of his life, literally. He's about to be martyred for his faith. And he has a a sense that that's about to take place. And he's writing to Timothy, going, Timothy, I'm done, man. I am done. I am spent. I am exhausted. I am worn out. I am done. I fought the good fight and I finished the race. Paul, why did you keep going? Because now I know what waits for me. It's this crown of righteousness which the Lord himself is going to award to me. That future hope is what drove Paul and kept him going. Or how about 2 Timothy 1.12? Again, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, which is why I suffer, Paul says, as I do. But I am not ashamed. Why are you not ashamed, Paul? For I know whom I have believed. I know whom I have believed. I know Jesus, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until the day what has been entrusted to me. So Paul's got this hope in Christ. It's a present hope that he's guarding him through here, but it's a hope that transcends the present. That ultimately, Jesus has got him. This faith that is fueled by a future hope. How about Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 through 14? Again, Paul says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, I strain forward to what lies ahead, and I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Man, I'm pressing on, I'm straining, I'm agonizing for this. Why? Because I've got the hope of the call of God in Christ Jesus. And so faith is fueled by this future hope. For Abram, it was the the city whose foundations are built by God. For us right now, it's, okay, God, with everything going on in the world that's all crazy and everything else like that, I know for sure what's coming in the future, and that's going to allow me to remain steadfast and faithful to you through it all. What else is faith? Look at verse 11. Verse 11. Ladies, here you go. Here comes a, a, a lady in the hall of faith, Sarah. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised And so what do we find there? Faith is rewarded. Faith is rewarded by God. God gives this promise, and Sarah physically, biologically, should not have been able to bear children at this point in her life. And yet because she believed that he who promised is faithful, God rewarded her faith and allowed her to conceive a child, and she gave birth to Isaac. Again, faith is rewarded. Think about Mark chapter 5. We just read it recently in the Daily Bible reading. Jesus is on his way to go heal a, a little girl who is, who's dying and dies before he gets there. But on his way there, a crowd is pressing in on him. And a woman comes up who's had a discharge of, of blood for a, a time. And she reaches out out of faith and touches the, the edge of his robe. And she's healed immediately. And he turns and looks at her. Well, he says, who touched me? And his disciples say, are you kidding me? Look at this crowd. He says, no, 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 I felt power go out. Who touched me? And he knew who did. He's drawing her into this conversation. It's not like Jesus was actually like, I have no idea who did this. Somebody tell me who touched me because I need to know. He knew, but he's drawing the woman out into the open so that she confesses that she had a need that he, only he was able to meet. And so she reached out in an act of faith and touches her. And he says to her, woman, go, your faith has healed you. And so faith is, is rewarded there. Or how about Matthew chapter 9, verses 28 through 29? You've got these two blind men that are calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. And Jesus is like, will you stop it? Like, what's going on? And so they they come to him, and he's going, hey, what do you want of me? And they say, well, we want you to heal us. And again, Jesus responds to their faith, and he heals them. And he tells them, your faith has healed you, right? Matthew 15, 28, you've got this Gentile woman that comes up to Jesus and asks him to heal her daughter. And Jesus says something that initially sounds kind of harsh. No, because it's not right to to give the the food of the children to the dogs. Meaning, I'm here for the Israelites, not the Gentiles. 
And the woman responds with a faithful statement to Jesus and says, yes, but don't even the dogs get to eat the crumbs from the table. And Jesus is marveling at her faith and says to her, woman, go, your child is healed. Your faith has made her well. But faith is, is rewarded. Or Luke 17, 9, there's 10 lepers that come to Jesus. Jesus heals them all. One comes back to him. And that one that comes back to express gratitude, Jesus looks at him and says, your faith has made you well. Your faith has healed you. Faith is rewarded. We get uncomfortable with that because you immediately think of Benny Hinn. Or you think of the name it, claim it preachers that are like, well, if you have enough faith, you'll be able to do this. You'll be able to do that. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying there's a paradigm in scripture that we can preach and convictingly preach that says that God rewards faithful people. It's not always going to be in the way that you want him to or in the timeline that you want him to do it. You can't demand of God that he operates according to your expectations in your timeline. But hey, I'm here to tell you, it's a safe place to be, to be in, in the, 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 the current of faith. God rewards faithful people. He just does. It's part of his MO. It's what he does. Ultimately, our greatest reward is that we get to go be in eternity with him, right? Which is far better than any earthly reward we could have. But I don't want us to sell short the fact that God responds favorably in, even in, in the present context to those who are faithful to him. Verses 13 through 16. We move on. It says this. These all died in faith, not having received the things that are promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Faith, next, is a recognition of our alien status. Sorry, I'm still not sure about this. I, <laughs> Siri is not sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure because the Bible tells me so. There you go, real life, right? What happens? The devil computer pops up on the screen and starts talking in the middle of a sermon. Faith is a recognition of our alien status. I saw the bubble pop up. I was like, this is not going to end well, and it didn't. It's a recognition of our alien status, and that's what he's talking about here, that they were looking for a homeland different from anything this world could provide. And that's got to be you and I too, Right? We've got to have that faith that says, look, I, I, I'm greeting these promises from afar. We're seeking a homeland, but not a homeland here. This is a common refrain in Scripture. In fact, Ephesians 2.19 says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens in God's economy. He says, instead, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. But now I want, to, want you to look at what that does to us with regard to the world. And Peter talks about that in 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, I urge you now as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. You're no longer an alien and a stranger when it comes to God's household. Praise God for that, right? But what that means is now you are an alien and a stranger when it comes to this world. That you are no longer at home here. As C.S. Lewis said, the, the, the fact that we have longings that are not met by the things of this world implies one thing, that we were made for another world, a better world. And so we need to recognize through our faith, as they did, that we seek a homeland that this world is not going to be able to provide for us. It's not here. It's a better homeland, a better place for us. We are strangers and exiles. Look at verses 17 through 18. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Faith, next, is obedience even when it's difficult. Obedience when it's difficult. And this is where the rubber begins to meet the road for us. This is where faith is, is uh, such a, a necessary part of our ability to endure. Think of what must have been going through Abraham's mind. Because he, he's got an overnight. After God says, I want you to offer your son, sacrifice him. See, in between the, the lines, the white space of scripture there, he sleeps or probably doesn't at all that night. Thinking about the fact that he's going to have to kill his son the next morning. Because God's commanded him to do it. 
obedience even when it's difficult. Philippians 3, 7 through 8, Paul speaks of obedience that's difficult. Paul says, whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, he says, I I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Y'all, if obedience to God means you let go of some earthly treasure and pleasure in order to be close to the, closer to God, in order to, to not be impeded in your relationship with the Lord, let it go. Because that intimacy with God is worth more, and that's what Paul is saying here. Whatever gain I had, gone. Garbage. And I did so gladly because it's better to choose Christ than that. Abraham's mindset was there. He said, okay, God. As we're going to find out from the next verse, he believed that God, even if Abraham had to go through with this, he believed that God was going to be able to raise his son from the dead. So he had a trust and a confidence in God's goodness that God was going to be doing something else because this was the son of the promised seed that, that, that God had already spoken to him about. But nonetheless, even if you were to tell me, hey, Pastor Vijay, God wants you to kill your oldest and, and it's, it's going to be okay because the next day he's going to raise from the dead. So everything's going to be fine. I, I, guys, I, I don't know if I could do it. I, I don't think I could. Even knowing that he'd be dead for a split second and then alive again. As a, as a dad, the, the act of that, talk about obedience when it's difficult. What is God calling you to do right now that you're going, man, that's hard. My guess is, in fact, I'm confident that it's not, to put to death any of your loved ones. If you feel like he's telling you that, come talk to me afterwards because we need to make an appointment. But all joking aside, it's nothing like this, whatever God's calling you to do right now. Are you willing to obey? Out of faith in the one that's commanding? But look at verse 19, speaking of Abraham's confidence, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And so Abraham's looking at the, the, the command there and going, man, this is, this is a tall order, but he says, okay, God, I'm going to do it, believing that if God allowed him to carry it all the way through, that God would raise him from the dead. Next point is this, believe that God is able. Belief, faith is what? Belief that God is able that he's able to do the amazing, the, the inconceivable, that he's able to do that which we can't do. It's big faith. Again, go back to Mark 5. The woman with the discharge had big faith that God could heal her when nobody else could. None of the doctors could do it for her. Time couldn't do it for her. Homeopathic medicines, essential oils, not helping her. She had to believe that God was big enough to do this, that Jesus was powerful enough to be able to do this for her. Again, the blind men in Matthew chapter 9 had to believe that Jesus could restore sight to them. The Gentile woman in Matthew 15 had to believe that Jesus could raise her dead. The, the, the Sanhedrin official's son, he had to believe that Jesus could raise him from the dead. I mean, the expressions of faith in the pages of Scripture are replete of people that believe that God was able to do amazing, powerful, big things. Are you believing God to be able to do amazing, powerful, big things in your life? Whether that's with your future or a relationship or a career or school, a big decision that you have pressing in on you right now that you're like, okay, I know what God would be calling me to do. I should go and do this. But man, there's just a lot of unknowns. There's a lot of question marks. Do you believe that God is able to to not only open the door, but to pave it for you so that you can walk through in faithful obedience to him? I'm not telling you it's going to be easy, but I'm going to tell you that's the safest place for you to be is in the will of God. Trusting him that he is able. He's not going to call you into a situation that he's not prepared for. You might not be fully prepared for it, but your God is. And he's going to make sure that you get prepared in the process. God is able. Faith is believing that, that he is able. Verses 20 through 21, 
By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Faith is not only belief that God is able, but it's also here anticipation of God's future blessings. Faith is anticipation of God's future blessings. He's talking about these, uh, these promises. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Isaac himself didn't have any power to, to bring any of that to fruition. Jacob, when he's blessing his children and blessing Joseph and Joseph's offspring, Jacob is dying. He doesn't have any power to bring any of those blessings to reality. But he's blessing his sons and proclaiming these future realities over their lives, speaking these things over their lives, trusting that God is going to be the one to fulfill those things, not because he's speaking them into existence, but because he's reaching back to the promises God has already made and calling them to reality in the lives of his children. And so faith is the anticipation of God's future blessings. For you and I, church, as we sit here today, we have a faith that the future blessing that all of us are going to experience is the new, the new earth. When we dwell with the Lord, when it says God will be their God, we will be his people. He's going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. Okay, that is a future blessing that we can hold on to. That is a blessing that I can promise my children as they become followers of Jesus, that that is their future guaranteed. And I can speak that blessing, that future reality into their lives because the Bible has already said that is real and that is guaranteed and that it's true. Faith has the anticipation of God's future blessings. Look at verse 22. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Faith is also trust in God's promises. Joseph knew that the end of the story for Israel was not going to be in Egypt. He knew that, that there was a future in the promised land because of the promises of God. He knew that, that that was eventually going to come to full reality and fruition. So as he's dying, he's saying, hey, don't leave me behind in Egypt. When the rapture happens, because he was a dispensationalist, I'm sure of it. Dumb, nerdy seminary joke. Anyways, he was saying, I don't want to be left in Egypt. So when you guys go back to the promised land, don't leave my bones here. Bring them with you. Faith trusts in the promises of God. Do you guys trust in the promises of God? Do you trust in the promise of Romans 8, 28, and 29? That God is causing all things to work together for the good of those who love him, who are call, called according to his purpose, in order that those whom he foreknew might be conformed to the image of his son. Do you trust the promise of God that the trial that you are walking through right now is making you more like Jesus, and so you can rejoice in the midst of that trial and that suffering? Do you trust that? Do you trust that the mountaintop that you are on right now, when things are going well for you, pales in comparison to what it's going to be like to be in for a split second in the presence of Jesus? Do you trust that Jesus is better than that? Do you trust that Jesus is better and more fulfilling and more satisfying than your dream marriage could ever be? Career, family, whatever that is for you. Do you trust the promises of God? Faith trusts in God's promises. Look at verse 23. By faith, Moses. Now we're to Moses now. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Faith takes risks to obey God. Faith is taking risks to obey God. And now we're talking not about Moses, but his parents. Because the edict of the king that it says that they were not afraid of was, hey, Listen, Israelites, we don't like you or your people, so all males that are born need to die. Spoiler alert, if you kill all the male babies from a particular group of people, there's no more of those people. They die out, okay? That's the point there. That's what he's going after. Pharaoh didn't want any more Israelites. Moses' parents say, yeah, we're not going to do that. It says because they looked at Moses and saw that he was beautiful. I think there's more there than just the fact that this was a cute kid. Instagram-worthy baby. I think the beauty that they're seeing there is that there's something different about this child. And so in an act of faith, because here they are in the hall of faith, right? They hide the child. They're willing to take a risk to obey God. What risk do you need to take to obey God? Where do you need to get a little bit uncomfortable in obedience to the, to the Lord? Think about Acts chapter 3, where Peter is 
just boldly looking at the Pharisees going, you guys are the ones that killed him. And the Jews, he's going, you delivered him up. Yes, it was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. As he says in chapter 2, but he says, look, you guys did this. You're guilty of this. You're sinners, and you need to repent from your sins and put your faith in Jesus. There's this boldness that he's taking a risk because here's people that have the power to imprison him, kill him, do whatever they want to him. And in fact, surely enough, that's what they do in verses 19 through 20. He calls them and says, look, you need to repent and turn back from your sins that they, your sins may be blotted out. Times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord that he may send the Christ appointed for you in, in Jesus. Later on, they're arrested and they're beaten and they go out rejoicing for the privilege of being able to suffer for Jesus. They're taking risks. In fact, at one point, they're sent out and the, the religious leaders of the Jews go, now don't you go preaching the gospel anymore. And you know what they do? They leave and what do they go do? They go keep preaching the gospel right away. And so they're willing to take risks to obey God. Think about Saul to Paul. <laughs> on both sides, right? He's literally on his way to, to imprison and kill Christians when God saves him. And then he shows up at the church the next Sunday morning. He's like, hey guys, is this communion Sunday? Can I, can I come in? Is this okay? Nobody's showing up around Christians and they're going, what are you doing here? It's okay, guys. I'm one of you. Okay, right. Sure you are, Saul. Can you imagine? Just There must have been some trepidation from Saul going, man, I'm taking a risk by even trying to step foot in this area with these other believers. And then think about his, his old Pharisaical buddies that he turned on. And now he's trying to, to tell them about Jesus, and he's going into the synagogues and everything. And they're going, wait a minute, weren't you Saul of Tarsus? Weren't you, didn't you sin under Gamaliel? Weren't you on our side for a You turncoat. In fact, early on, they want to kill him. And so the church does what? They let him down out of a you know, basket, out of a window. Which I got to imagine there was a back door, but they're like, okay, let's, let's mess around with Saul a little bit. For all the suffering he caused for us, somebody get a basket and a rope. Shouldn't we just use the back door? No, no, no. Get the basket and the rope. Don't say anything about the back door. They let him down. Why? Because the, the, his Jewish compatriots, they want to kill him for what he's doing. And so faith takes risks to obey God. Y'all, Listen. Some of you have lost people in your lives that you are afraid to evangelize because you're worried that they won't like you anymore. You're going to stand before Jesus and say that to him? You willing to take a risk of somebody not liking what you have to say in order to, to share the life-changing news of Jesus Christ with them? Are you willing to take that risk out of faith? taking risks to obey God. He continues there, look at verse 24. Now he turns to, to Moses and not just Moses' mom and dad. But by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Faith here is not just taking a, a risk necessarily, but it's also choosing God over comfort. Faith chooses God over comfort. Moses had a maid. Pharaoh's daughter, after the, the whole, hey, we're gonna, his parents going, we're going to hide him because he's a cute baby. Um, he ends up in Pharaoh's household. And Pharaoh's daughter is raising him within Pharaoh's household. He is a made man. He's got it. And yet he eventually chooses to identify with God's people rather than with the Egyptians. Now, that's not fully formed when he kills the Egyptian for abusing the Israelite. But still, then Moses goes out and flees into to Midian. And God calls him in Midian after 40 years as a shepherd there. He says, I want you to go and free my people, right? Moses made that initial decision, though, to say, I know if I do this, I'm, I'm, I'm severing my identity as an Egyptian and choosing my identity as part of Israel, part of the people of God. Moses was willing to do that because he was willing to choose God over comfort. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 11. Paul's resume of, of suffering. He says, I'm, uh, verse 21, whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. Now, listen to Paul choosing God over comfort. 
far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes, less one. There were men who died once from that. Paul says five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Oh, by the way, what was stoning intended to do? Kill you. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Notice what word is not there. Comfortable, complacent, at ease. It's the opposite. Danger, 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 danger. Y'all, let me balance that statement that I made earlier about the fact that faith is rewarded. It is rewarded but I don't want to give you the impression that God's will is for your life to be cushy and comfortable and easy here. Because remember, we are, another thing that faith recognizes that we are aliens and strangers here. We're not meant to feel like we're at home here. And so if you're expecting, man, this is going to be great. I'm going to be an Instagram Christian for the rest of my life. I hope not. I really do. I really, truly, honestly hope not. Because that is settling. And that's not what God wants from you. The direction this world is heading, I hope that there's far more of us in this room that are going to be able to say with Paul, yeah, danger from this, danger from this, danger from this, danger from this, danger from this. Because we're willing to choose God over comfort and obedience to him. Faith does that. Verse 26. He, Moses, considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Faith not only chooses God over comfort, but it also rightly assesses what matters. Again, and it's not found here under the sun. Read Ecclesiastes. Faith rightly assesses what matters. Moses, it says, was willing to bear the reproach of Christ. Did he know that it was Christ? No. But that's what it was in the end. He was willing to suffer the, the contempt of the world because he considered the treasures of that, of, of Christ, of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward, rightly assessing what matters, looking to eternity, saying, I'm going to store up treasures for myself there and not here, as we talked about last time. He rightly assesses what matters. Faith does that for us. Look at verse 27. He goes on, he says, by faith, he, Moses, left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Faith is understanding God's sovereignty. Faith understands God's sovereignty. Moses left Egypt, not being afraid of Pharaoh. How, why? How? Because he trusted that God was ordaining and overseeing all of these events. He wasn't afraid of Pharaoh because he knew that God had called him to do something and God was going to make sure that it was done. And so he leads all of the Israelites out in an act of obedience to the Lord. How, how about in, in Acts chapter 21, verses 11 through 16, you've got this cat named Agabus that shows up who's a, a New Testament prophet, and he comes up to Saul, and he binds Saul's hand with the belt, and he says, look, this is what's going to happen to this one when he goes out from here. He's going to be arrested in prison, and the implication is he's going to die. And guess what all of the people around Paul try to convince him not to do? They try to convince him not to go. Paul, don't go because you don't know what's awaiting you. But Paul's confidence in the sovereignty of God said, I must go because I'm going to go because I'm prepared not only to suffer, I'm, I'm willing, I'm ready to die in obedience to the Lord because I trust in his sovereign plan for my life. I trust in his sovereign plan for my life. If he wants me imprisoned, I'm going to be imprisoned. If he wants me to die for my faith, I'm going to die for my faith because I trust his sovereignty. Moses trusted in God's sovereignty and therefore he was not afraid to leave. He was not afraid of the anger of the king for he endured us seeing him who is invisible. He saw God as the divine orchestrator of all of the events that was taking place. And he had confidence in that, and that fueled his obedience. Verse 28, by faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Faith is obedience without the full picture. Obedience without the full picture. Think about the first Passover. Think about Moses telling the, the Israelites what they were going to do. Okay, you guys all need to get a lamb, one-year-old, baby lamb, cute ones, okay? Make sure it's like a really cute one too, no defects, no, no blemishes. 
Like don't, don't get the one that you don't like. Get the really cute one, okay? Okay, we're tracking with you, Moses. What do you want us to do? Pet it? Carry it around? Team mascot. Go, Israel lambs. Is that what we're doing? No, 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 we're not going to do that. So I want you to get a knife. Okay. Where are you going with this, Moses? Yeah, get a knife, get some hyssop. Can you point that out and tell me what that is again? And, and here's what I want you to do. You're going to take the lamb and you're going to slaughter it. And then you're going to take the, the, the brush of hyssop and you're going to dip it in the blood of the lamb that you just slaughtered. And you're going to wipe it on your door frames. And the Lord's going to pass over and your firstborn is not going to die. Can you imagine trying to explain that to the Israelites at the time? Can you imagine acting in obedience to that and not fully understanding what you're doing, not having the full picture of it? We look back at it and we're like, well, of course, it's the Passover lamb. And it's symbolic of the fact that Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. I mean, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So, of course, the Passover makes sense. But in that moment, it's obeying without the full picture. In fact, Paul says we're even still obeying without the full picture. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly. So when we think we've got it all together, guess what? We don't got it all together. When we think we fully understand, guess what? We don't fully understand. We see in a mirror dimly, but then a day is coming when we will see clearly face to face. And so faith is obedience without the full picture. Again, let me ask you, students, what, what might God be calling you to do right now? And you don't have the full picture and you're a little nervous because you like to have all your ducks in the row before you act. Or God is perhaps calling you, asking you, commanding you to step out in faithful obedience to him without the full picture. And to do it because it's what he wants you to do because it's the right thing to do. Some of the times that we, I think, experience this most often is with our security blankets. Like Maybe you've got a relationship in your life right now that's your security blanket. That's just not a godly relationship. And you know that God would have you end things. And I'm not even talking believer or unbeliever at this point. I'm talking, you could be two believers, two Christians, but this relationship is not a godly relationship. And you know that you should end things. But you're going, but, but what's going to happen if I'm single? What's going to happen if I don't have a boyfriend or girlfriend anymore? Who am I going to end up dating in the future? We've already talked about marriage. What, who am I supposed to marry now? Well, what am I supposed to do at the bridge? I'm going to have to go and sit by myself. People already mash up our names and call us one name, like Brangelina. They're going to be so upset when we're not together anymore. Whatever the reasoning is, whatever your security blanket is that you're holding on to and you know that God wants you to let that thing go, let that thing go, even though you don't have the full picture of what your life is going to be like afterwards. Because that's an expression of faith in God. Look at verses 29 through 30. By faith, people crossed the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been circled for seven days. Now we're talking about these phenomenally miraculous acts of God. We talked about the fact that God is able. Well, similarly, faith is remembering God's great acts. It's looking back on the things that God has done and remembering that to bolster your faith and your confidence. It's remembering the Red Sea, going, that is phenomenal that the sea split and the, 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 the water stood up as these walls and the Israelites walked across on dry land. That's amazing. Notice it's not just that they crossed, they crossed on dry land. And then Pharaoh's army went in and the waters came back down. Or the walls of Jericho. When was the last time you walked around something seven times and it just dropped? My guess is never. This is a miraculous thing that God did. Why? Because he was showing his people that he was a powerful God, that they could trust him, anchoring their faith to him. And so we to remember God's great acts. In fact, when the people crossed into the, the, the promised land, they, they went through the Jordan River. The, the Ark of the Covenant went through first in the waters again, separated so the people could cross on dry land, and then the ark came up out of the river. But as the people were going through, you know what they were called to do? They were called to take stones 
and they were called to take these stones out of the river and set them up as a monument on the other side of the river so that every time they would pass by those stones, they would remember their, their God and his power and his might and all of the good things that he had done to deliver them into the promised land. And that was to increase their faith in who he is and what he's doing. Y'all, that's kind of the whole goal of chapter 11. Look at verse 31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. The spies are sent into the, the scout out the territory there and she hides them and, and doesn't turn them over. And so God rewards that faith by sparing her life. Here's what I want you to see. Their faith is unprejudiced. Notice what it says, Rahab the, the prostitute. These great expressions of faith are not reserved for people who preach from a pulpit. These great acts of faithful obedience are not reserved for seminary graduates or pastors or, you know, your, your heroes of the faith. Rahab, a prostitute, has faith. And God rewards that faith. And she ends up even in chapter 11 here. It doesn't condone the sin in her life. I'm not suggesting that. What I am suggesting is faith is available to those who will take advantage of it. You can do great things because your faith is an expression in a God who can do great things. Verses 32 through 34. He goes, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon. See, he's a preacher because he's like, I'm running out of time. So let me just get a few more points in here. <laughs> time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. There's Daniel, by the way. Quenched the power of fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Abednego. Escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. So he's going on and on and on and on. Going, Look, there's so many other people here, right? Uh, time would fail me. What's his point? Well, it's this. Faith is powerful. Because think about all these other people that I can't even unpack for you. And all the amazing, powerful things that God did in their lives. Again, faith is rewarded. God is able. Faith is powerful. God responds in a big way because he's a big God. You're not trusting yourself when you step out in faith. You are trusting God. You're not trusting yourself to hold fast. You are trusting God to keep you. And that's an expression of faith in a powerful God. Y'all, if you're not reading biographies of great Christians of the past, change that tonight. If you're going, man, I'm not much of a reader. Over in our bookstore, over there, it's closed right now. But tomorrow it'll be open, or next Sunday. There are books, it's in the kids section, but get over it, because I had our men's ministry when I first came on board here. My first thing was to have them read books that are intended for sixth graders, and they kept me for like four and a half years. So it works, right? But go in there, there's these missionary biographies. They're like red, and I forget the, I think the last name of the author is B-E-N-G-E, -E, and they're on the shelf in there, and they're just, brief snapshots. If you're like, I'm not much of a reader, that's fine. Grab one and put it on the back of your toilet. You'll get through it in like a week's time. Some of you guys, maybe like two days. Um, <laughs> but all that to say, read about these, these testimonies of these famous, not famous, well, famous from an earthly perspective, but these, these believers who trusted God to do big things and how he responded in their lives. Faith is powerful. Jesus says this about faith in Mark chapter 11, verses 22 through 23. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. The intent of this verse is not for you to go out and look at Saddleback and go, move. <laughs> the church, the college, or the mountain. Don't look at any of them and ask God to do any of that, okay? The point here is about the power of faith. The faith in its purest form accomplishes great things because of the object of the faith. Because God is able to accomplish great things. Look at verses 35 through 38. Women receive back their dead by resurrection, but here, notice the tone turns. Some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise to a better life. 
Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in half. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in the deserts and the mountains and in dens and in the caves of the earth. Faith is fuel for endurance. That was what we started out talking about here. Are, if you've ever wondered, man, am, am I going to endure if, if the heat gets turned up? Notice here, some were tortured, refusing to accept release. They were given an opportunity to, to, to walk out so that they might rise again to a better life. Y'all, that, a, a, that is an alien mindset. Talk about something that's alien. So many of the, the, the English reformers who died under the reign of Bloody Mary were given opportunities. Yeah, just recant, which means to deny what you've been teaching. These pastors, these faithful Christians, hey, just recant, just deny what you've been teaching, and we will set you free. Imagine the opportunities to rationalize in your mind. Oh, well, I'll, I'll deny it to them, but, but I don't really mean that I'm going to deny it. I'm just going to deny it so I can be alive and keep doing my ministry because I'm useful to the Lord and I need to be used. This is not a shot at the current title of the sermon series, by the way, that came out of my mouth and I just realized, oh man, that could have totally been a, I'm not trying to imply that at all. I'm just saying, rationalizing in our mind, we could say, hey, I want God to use me more. So yeah, let me just deny it, but I don't, I don't really mean it. I don't really mean it. In fact, there was one guy, Bishop of Canterbury, who ended up doing that and he signed a letter denying his, his teaching so that he could escape being burned alive at the stake. Thomas Cranmer. He later felt the conviction in the way of the Spirit, so much so that he went back and he said, you know, my denial, I deny my denial. I want you to rearrest me and send me to the stake. He was taken out to the stake. He was tied to the stake where the, the wood was piled up around him. And here's what they would do. They would chain them to the, the stake and then they would pile the, the, the wood all around the, the person's body and light the wood on fire. And they would literally just burn them to death. For teaching the gospel. Well, Cranmer, as history records it, was taken to the stake, tied to the stake. The wood was piled up. The, the, the flames were lit. And as the flames began to, to climb up the logs towards him, he took the hand that signed his recanting and he stuck it down in the flames first. And he said, I want this to burn first. It's a faith that is a fuel for endurance. Faith is necessary for that type of endurance. Finally, 39 through 40. In all these, okay, everyone that I've just talked about, all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Notice verse 40. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Who's he talking about in verse 39 through 40? Sunday school answer. Jesus. He said, they did not receive what is promised. The, the promised offspring of Abraham from Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, or the, the seed of the woman from Genesis 3, right? And the, the promised offspring, the, the son of David that would reign forever and ever and ever, the, the, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. They didn't receive what was promised. These great, amazing saints whose faith causes us to go, wow. Notice what he said. We have something better. Because we have Jesus. Because we've got the full picture. Because we can look to the cross. We can see it. And so here's what faith is, finally. Faith is more fully developed for us. You have a leg up on David. You have a leg up on Moses. You have a leg up on Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. You have a leg up on Daniel, on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You have a leg up on Isaiah and Jeremiah, on Micah. Jonah, you got a big leg up on Jonah. Malachi, Ezekiel, Elijah, Elisha, Enoch, Abel, Solomon. You've got a leg up on them, Joshua, Caleb. You have something better because you know Jesus. And you say, well, don't they know Jesus now? Yes, they do. That's what it means. It says they would not have been made perfect 
without the provision of Jesus. Because Jesus was ultimately the realization of their faith. They just didn't know it. You and I know it. And so we have something better. Because we know Jesus. It's more fully developed for us. They were believing the Lord for promises they would never see fulfilled. We know the fulfillment of the promise in the cross. But here's the thing, y'all. There are still some promises in Scripture that are still not fulfilled yet, aren't there? Revelation 21, not fulfilled yet. But just like these saints were faithful to anticipate the reality of the cross, the reality of Jesus before they really knew what that was going to look like, y'all, we need to stay faithful in what is still yet to be fulfilled by the Lord, trusting as they did. Even though we don't have the full picture, even though we don't see clearly, even though we don't understand everything right now, we're going to continue to walk in obedient faith the way that faith looks in Hebrews chapter 11 as we await the ultimate realization of the promises that yet will be fulfilled in God's timeline. So yeah, you do got to have faith, as George Michael put it. But it's a faith that looks like the faith of Hebrews 11. Like we've just been talking about, those 23 points of what faith looks like. It's this assurance of a future bought by the blood of Christ and the conviction of that reality that allows us to endure no matter what might come our way. Let's pray. God, we are thankful and grateful for your goodness to us. God, we are grateful for the gift of faith that allows us to endure, the gift of faith that allows us to keep trusting you even when it's difficult, the gift of faith that allows us, God, to anticipate that future reality of an eternity with you on the new earth where there's no more sin, no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears. God, we are so thankful for the gift that faith is and ultimately the, the gift of faith, first and foremost, that sees that we are sinners alienated from you and we need Jesus, that we need his death and his resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins and the guarantee of a future uh, eternal life lived with you. So God, we are so thankful that you are a faithful God who is a generous God to give faith to those that you so choose so that we might trust in Christ and experience all of these glorious realities. We are much like these Old Testament saints in some regard. We, yeah, we look back at the cross, but we look forward to eternity. And we do so expecting, waiting, trusting, enduring, holding fast, because we know the God who has promised and the God who has promised these things, he himself, you, God, are faithful. We thank you for this and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.